Monday, Bet Sivan, and this is KMTT. This is Ezra Beck. We're starting the fourth week of the summer session of KMTT. This week's Shuvim are dedicated in memory of Rav Chaim Barabatzalel by his descendants. His yard site falls this Friday on Shavuot. Today's Shiur is given by Harav Binyamin Tavori, the Shiur in the weekly mitzvah for Pashat Nasar. After the Shiur, I will be back with the Halacha Yomit. Parashat Nasar has in it the parasha of Sota, the woman who is suspected of adultery. And the Torah says the entire parasha of how to deal with it, and eventually how the Torah developed the method, the Torah, Kaddish Baruch Hu, gave us a method of testing the woman to ver- verify either her innocence, hopefully, or her guilt. The Chomikre, at the, at the end, it's supposed to ensure Shalom Bayez that the husband's suspicions should be allayed. There's a Machlokas Negemara in Sosa Davkimo, whether there's a mitzvah, a chova, or a rishus. This idea that the kineyas ishto, the husband, somehow is very jealous, nervous, and he suspects his wife and he warns her not to enter any indiscretion with the assumed, the purported uh, person with whom she is accused. So, Machlokis is, if that kingly, if that act of, call it, uh, warning, should be a, considered a mitzvah or a chova. A mitzvah, or an obligation, or a rishus, or a, an optional thing that the Torah told us what to do if he so desires. The Rambam, in, his, in Sefer HaMitzvah, says there's a mitzvah of dealing with a sota. But interestingly enough, he doesn't say the mitzvah is on the on the husband. The mitzvah, according to the Rambam, mitzvah Reish Chav Gimel, mitzvah Tasei, 223, should see sota. The mitzvah is like to deal with the laws of sota. The Rambam explains that this mitzvah means how to do it, how to give her the water to drink, how she should bring her carbon. It seems it's not a, an obligation on the husband at all. It's an obligation, if anything, on the Bezdin, on the group that works with this particular issue, to do it properly. The Rambam, in general, has a category of mitzvahs that apply to judging, to dealing with laws, not specifically being involved personally in the law, but just making sure the law takes place. For example, the Rambam has a mitzvah of being a shomechina, a mitzvah of guarding something, somebody gives you something to, wa- to watch, and you watch it without uh, re- receiving any, any financial reward for it. So obviously there's no real uh, mitzvah like, uh, we wouldn't say it's like putting on tefillin or saying kriyashma to be a shomechina, to be a, such, a, such a, a guard, such a, a shomer. But to do it properly is within the gamut of the world of Torah mitzvahs. And the Rambam, again, in the introduction to Hilchos Sota, in the Rambam and Mishnah Torah, the Rambam says that the mitzvah is la'asot la'sota b'torat ha'knaotas durah b'torah, to do with the sota the laws of the Torah that which are in our parasha. 
the husband's role in this, according to the Rambam, is apparently not required by the Torah. The Torah told us what to do in case it happens. However, the Rambam says, and this is the way he actually concludes the laws of Sota, Misvat Chachamim al-Bnei Yisrael lekanot l'nesheihem. Misvat Chachamim, according to the Rambam, seems to be a Durabanan, that Rabbanan said it is a good idea, even though according to the Torah it's totally a Rishus, that's what it seems, it's optional. The Rambam seems to say that it's a good idea, the Chachamim said it's a Mitzvah Saseh, a Mitzvah Chachamim. And the Ram says, based on the argument in Gemara, a person who is does this act with his wife, it's doing it out of purity of spirit. But he should be careful. He shouldn't do it in a fear, in a fit of, of anger or in a fit of, of fear or trying to instill fear in the family. It's only if he has his pure motives for doing this. The Rambam, again, in Hilchos Ishus, says that it would be a good idea to do it, but there he uses a little different language. Chova there is an obligation, whereas in Hilchosota, the Rambam said the Mitzvah Chachamim, here he used the word Chova. And the Rambam says, Amu Chachamim, in Hilchosotah, he goes back, Amu Chachamim, Ein Adam Torah, the same type of statement he made in Hilchosotah. Here he did say it's a a chalva. So the Rambam seems to say that the biblical requirement, the mitzvah, is only to deal with the issue when it arises. But there's a chiv drabanan, a mitzvah drabanan at least, for a person who, with cool calmness, without levity without fear does such a thing when the source situation so warrants it right around them that's a mitzvah the many we show them have raised this issue whether we really paskin that it's a mitzvah or a chova I'd like to quote the just to say for Achinuch, who says that the mitzvah is mitzvah shin samachay in, in the Sefer Achinuch mitzvah sota shiyavi'ah shiyavi'ah Mitzvah sota is that the husband should bring it to the Kohen. Apparently, according to the Chinuch, it's a mitzvah on the husband. V'yasela k'mishpada katsuf. To do it in accordance with what it says. V'yasela seems to be the husband. The chiyuv completely seems to be on the husband. The, the Sefer Chinuch, therefore, says at the very end of this mitzvah, V'over alzeh v'kinei li'ishtah the Ram, the Chinuch says if a person did warn her and yet she disobeyed the, the warning and entered a secret place with a suspected person and then he does not bring her to the Kohen to continue the process so he transgressed a he did not fulfill the mitzvah and it seems to be that the mitzvah is upon him. The Menachas Chinuch therefore raises the issue, well, in such a case, would we actually employ some sort of force, kefiyah, in order to force him to fulfill his mitzvah? The Mishnah Melech quoted a Bet Shmuel, the Menachas Chinuch quotes, the Mishnah Melech who quotes a Bet Shmuel, 
הוא רואה אם אין הבעל רוצה להשקות, הבית אם כופים אותה להשקותה לברר הספק. בטן של אקשלי פורס אוזמן לדוי. It seems to be, according to this line of reasoning, it would be a mitzvah on the husband to do it. If it is a mitzvah on the husband, then it's like any other mitzvah, any other mitzvah which could imply coercion under certain circumstances. In general, we have a Gemara in Ksuvisa, Pefav, if a person says he doesn't want to do a mitzvah, we would try to coerce him to do the mitzvah until he finally does it of his own volition, as is well known the position of the Rambam in Hechel's Gerushin, how can you force a person to submit and say he wants something? This, uh, of course, is not operable in our times, but the idea of coercion for this mitzvah seems to be logical according to the opinion of the, of the Chinuch that it's a mitzvah on the husband. However, in that opinion itself, that it's a mitzvah on the husband does seem rather strange since the Chinuch generally follows the footsteps of the Rambam and considers the, who considers the mitzvah a chiv and bezdin, but not a chiv and husband, it's a little strange that the Sefer Chinuch seems to take his own path. One might add that even according to the Rambam, that there's no mitzvah directly in the husband to do uh, this act of kanaut, this act of warning, But yet, the, if a husband would see his wife, or conversely, any case, a woman would see her husband not behaving in a proper fashion, the mitzvah hocheach tochiach certainly would apply. The mitzvah hocheach tochiach is to admonish your friend, to put him on a better path, to take him off a, a, the wrong path. This mitzvah obviously applies between husbands and wives, and it would seem... So Perlau says in his edition of the Sefer Mitzvah of Rabbi Nassajikon that certainly the Chiv of Hocheach Tochiach would apply in this particular case as well as in other cases. And therefore, even according to the Rambam, there would be a biblical mitzvah, not just a mitzvah de Rabbanon, but you wouldn't have to do it in this exact form, in the form the way the Torah told us, and with all the ceremony, with all the certain rites that you have here, but the mitzvah of the husband to where I said, in any case where people see any other people doing, acting in an improper way, the correct approach according to the Torah would be and therefore it would be a mitzvah anyway. From our parsha in, in the parsha of Sota, whether it's a mitzvah or not, We learned from here the general laws of a case of adultery, Rahman al-Islam. And we know from the derivation of the Psukim, from the words Nitma'ah that were repeated a number of three times, the Torah says that a woman who did commit adultery is therefore not allowed to remain married to her, her husband. And not only is she not allowed to remain with her original husband, even if she would get divorced. According to Jewish law, they would have to get divorced. So if they get divorced, they, then this woman could not marry the person with whom she committed adultery. The same way she is forbidden from staying married to the husband under whom she committed adultery, she is not allowed to remarry or marry the person with whom she committed adultery. It's very well known that the Rambam Paskins that an Ashish Ish, Shazinsa, a woman who committed adultery, is offered to her husband. But, of course, there are three basic types of, 
adultery, uh, where we won't be, actually in English call it adultery, but uh, we'll use the words in Hebrew, the woman who, for lack of a better translation, which will be explained in a few minutes, I'll say again, a woman committed adultery. There are three examples. There's a case where a woman would be mizanebamezid. A woman would do this with prior malice aforethought. She intends to commit adultery. And then the extreme case would be, where, God forbid, in the case of rape, when a woman would be, a married woman would be raped. In the case where a married woman is raped, of course she's not usher to her husband. It's only usher to her husband when it's, quote, her fault, unquote. But if it's uh, if she were raped, chas v'shalom, so then she's allowed to stay married to her original husband. The midpoint would be an a woman who committed adultery, but unintentionally. The in such a case, the Rambam asks in Perek Chavdal of Hilchos that a woman who committed adultery b'shkaga obaonas mutarisabala, a woman who committed adultery either against her will, in the case of rape, or in the case of shogig, where she committed the act unintentionally, which we'll explain soon, the Rambam says she, in such a case, she's Mutarasabala. In an unbelievable tour de force, the Maharik, which is one of the most famous uh, opinions of Maharik, well-known in the yeshiva world, Maharik made up his own new chidush, his new idea, and he based it really on the, the simple shot of the Pasuk. The Marik distinguished, for our purposes, we'll explain there are two different types of shogig itself. Unintentionally can be one in two ways. One is uh, in a case where somehow the woman was misled into thinking that this is really her husband. In such a case, the Rambam would say, and the Marik said this is true, that a woman who committed adultery Bishogeg, unintentionally, so she's ushered, she's permitted to her husband. However, there's another case. The other case would be in a case where she knows that it's not her husband, and she's quite, quite aware of what she's doing, but she doesn't realize it's usher. She doesn't, she doesn't, is not aware of the laws of the Torah, and doesn't realize that adultery is permitted in the morality of certain worlds, she thinks is an expression of free love, which she doesn't really see as an ether. The Marik said that in such a case she would definitely be forbidden to her husband. Because the Torah said, Ish, ish, ishto, Now, the word Me'ila, we'll get back again to later, but the word me'ila, for our purposes, I'll translate as she does something bad. She does an injustice. She takes away something from her husband. So the Marik says, This is not the case of a shogeg, of an unintentional act which we could therefore permit to her husband. Because she doesn't intend to do something bad to her husband. The Torah didn't say, points out to Marik, The Torah didn't say a woman who turns away, becomes a sota, and does something bad to God, which would imply that she has to have intention for the Easter. But, The Torah said she 
did an injustice to him. She did something wrong to him. In such a case, the Marik said she's still usher to her husband. As long as she is totally unaware that she is create that she is doing something wrong, she thinks it's her husband, then the Marik says she's permitted to her husband. But if she knows that it's not her husband, and she knows well what she's doing, but she doesn't think there's an Easter involved, then it, she would be re- permitted to stay with her husband. One thing seems very surprising about the continuation of the Maharik is that what would happen in a case where a woman would commit adultery knowingly <coughs> with prior intention but think that the ultimate good of what she's doing would outweigh this particular action. And let's make it even stronger. In the case where the halacha itself would say that under such circumstances it's better actually to commit adultery than to refrain. How could such a case be? <coughs> the Maharik himself brings the case of Esther. The Gemara in Megillah says that based on the Pasuk in Megillah Esther that Esther said Kasher what's lost is lost and the Gemara explains in Megillah the same way I'm lost I'm lost from my father's house I'm lost from you. Until now the Gemara assumes that she was married to Mordechai and even though she had relations with Achashverosh the entire time, that was considered <coughs> a case of rape. Onus. But from going willingly to the king, it was birason. It was with her intention. Even though at that time, she went with intention to save Yisrael, to save the entire community, and the Marik adds, it's obvious, the most elementary question, it's more obvious than any elementary question, that Esther did nothing wrong, there was not even a trace of a sin, it was a great mitzvah, and you should know, he says, when she came before the king, they say that Esther somehow attained Ruach HaKodesh, she attained one of the actual prophecy, and she knew what she was doing, and she knew that it was right, and therefore, the Ruach HaKodesh itself said it was right, but still, she's also with her husband. I find this very surprising, because if the Isar, according to Marik, is defined by Mual of Omal, if the Isar is defined as doing something wrong, something done as an injustice, so in a case where her purpose is to save Chai Yisrael, why should this be considered Malavamal? In fact, later Achronim raised a discussion about this particular point and said that in a case where the husband actually is in danger, a case, well-known case, Achronim raised the case of a, of a certain group of travelers that was taken captive and the obvious intention of the villain who took them captive was to kill them all. And one of the women there decided that she could try to seduce the leader of the band 
And by doing so, she would rescue her husband and the entire community. If this is indeed the case, and her purpose was really L'shem Shemayim, what sometimes we would call an Avera L'shma, a perp- an Avera, but for good purpose, and that itself would be a major topic to discuss. What is the the status of an Avera L'shma within the context of Judaism? But assuming that this is true, why should she really be also to her husband? The concept of Mual of Omal, doing an injustice to her husband, doesn't seem to apply. But nevertheless, the Marik himself probably would have thought that this is usher. Not only is it usher, as a matter of fact, it might not be usher. It might be the act itself, might be permitted, but the Easter to her husband would still obtain, even though what she did seems to be the right thing to do under the circumstance. When we say that in Eshaz Ish, Shazimsa, Asur Labala, a married woman who committed adultery becomes forbidden to her husband. So, we could say it in an even sharper fashion. There are many Achronim who dis- discuss this issue. I think Rav Shechter wrote about this in his Sefer Eretz Hatzvi. The normal Kiddushin, when a person is married to a wife, it means that from now on, once she accepts Kiddushin from her husband, she's allowed according to biblical law, to have relations with him, but she is forbidden to have relations with anyone else. In the case where a married woman commits adultery, then from now on she's ushered to her husband. This din that not only is she ushered to the adulterer, the person with whom she committed adultery, but she's ushered to her husband, this din itself is not just, could be interpreted, that it's not just an ushered to her husband, but since the hatter to her husband is gone, in a sense, there is a lack of total kedushin in this case. The boel, the person who came along, the adulterer, who committed adultery with this woman, actually, by this act, they caused the kedushin to be somewhat dissipated. Now, it's not completely dissipated. She is still an ish. She's still ushered to the entire world. But, somehow, the ishas may be considered lacking. It's not, it's not considered a, a total issue. And that's the an idea that's found in a look with a, a, a novel interpretation of, of Rashi and Achronim. The Torah said in Devarim, Ki If a woman sleeps with a with a married woman sleeps with a man, and they both die. So Rashi, on the Pasuk, raises the issue, what is the word gam for? Why does the Torah say they both die? Shneem implies, is not, it does not imply, Shneem is two people. So why does the Torah have to say, So Rashi says, the words itself of Rashi are very enigmatic. In fact, in Rashi, if you'll study, look it up, you'll see there are two texts of exactly what the words are, are, are written in Rashi. I'm using the text, So some people interpret this as an abnormal manner of sexual relations. But 
the Bartanura in his parish in Chumash, and this is quoted by the Sfirim in the Torah, and this is again, this is quoted by Rabbi Shechter in his book, Eretz Hatzvi. The Bartanura says, the Torah told us here that someone who comes later, which would mean as follows. Let's say Rachel committed adultery with Chaim. So when she committed adultery with Chaim, so now Chaim and Rachel are both Chayav Misa. But let's say Rachel then commits adultery with Barov. Now, in a sense, she's Chayav Misa already for the first time. But would Beryl be Chayav Misa? The Torah told me, even if there's another case. And according to the Bartolura, even if someone comes later, they're both Chayav Misa, both Ruven, both uh, Rachel and Chaim and Beryl, they're all Chayav Misa. Uh, theoretically, Rachel is Chayav Misa twice. And Chaim and Beryl are both Chayav Misa. What would be the rationale to think otherwise? So this is what I explained. The Achronim say that since the Kedushim, the original Kedushim, was somewhat dissipated by the fact that the wife committed adultery, therefore there is not as severe, perhaps, it's not as severe an Avera as a regular Ashes Ish who would commit adultery. Here the Ishas is not complete. So now if we would learn that Havamin, if we would learn that with the thought behind the reasoning, so now we could really explain two ways. The Torah at the end said, my whole logic is wrong. Ashes Ish is in Sabi, Kedushin is intact, she's a regular Ashes Ish, and therefore if she commits adultery, God forbid another time, then of course about Chayv Misa. And the only reason the Torah told us is to reject this line of thinking. The other possibility would be that our whole line of reasoning is correct. And Eshesisha Zimsa is a Surah because there's some sort of Afkaz Ishus, there's a removal of partial Ishus from them. And therefore, the Torah really had to tell us, are you Chayef Misa, even in, in such a case, where you committed adultery, but not the adultery of a married woman who has complete issues, but even for mixed house issues, even for partial issues. And then the Torah would tell us that perhaps even for partial issues, Yechayev Misa. A similar type of question could be raised in the, in the general din, that a woman who committed adultery is usher to her husband and usher to the boel, to the a person with whom she committed adultery. Part of the reason may be that he actually committed adultery, the second person committed adultery. Not only did he commit adultery, but he created an ether on the first husband. He also took away, as we explained, a little bit of the condition of the first one. So, if this is true, one may raise an interesting question. If a person did not take away the ishos of the original person, would he still be usher himself? The case, of course, would be a woman committed adultery, and therefore she's usher to her original husband. And now a second, hus- a second adulterer comes along and 
he commits adultery with the original lady before she receives the divorce. Now, it's true we just learned that you're Devot Chayv Misa. That's true. But nevertheless, you might argue and say, well, why should she be ushered to the Boel? Because the Easter of the Boel might be contingent upon the Easter to the Baal. The, if there's no Easter created by the Easter to the Baal, then perhaps she's mutter to the second Boel. This is a suffix raised by the Chalkas Yoav. The Chalkas Yoav in Eben Ezer has an entire question. At the end, he compares this to a case of a Kohen who raped a married woman. I said before that if a married woman commits adultery, she's ushered to her husband. If she were raped, if it was considered onus against her, her will, then she's definitely muteris to her husband. Unfortunately, this is not the case of a Kohen. If a Kohen is married to a woman and she is raped, according to Jewish law, sad situation, she must be divorced. In such a case, we could argue that although generally in the laws of onus, a woman is re-allowed to marry her husband. Since she is re-allowed to marry her husband, she is allowed to marry the Boel after she would get divorced because he did not create an Yisrael on the husband. With a Yisraelite, a woman who is married to a Yisrael who is raped, is not ushered to her husband. If she's not ushered to her husband, so then she's not ushered to the Boel either, because the Easter to the Boel is contingent upon the Easter to the Baal. If this is true, then we could say that in the case where she is really not Asura le Baal because of this original, because of, because of the second adultery, because she was really Asur before that. So in such a case, maybe she really would be mutter to her husband even though, not to her husband, she'd be mother to the person with whom she committed adultery, even though she committed adultery as a nation thief, even bemazed. But since she, this, this act did not create an Easter in the original husband, so perhaps in such a case we could say that she's mutaris le, la boel. The main discussion we began today was really the definition of the mitzvah of Sota, is it really a mitzvah or not? If it is a mitzvah, on whom is the mitzvah? We mentioned there's a machlokas between the Rambam and the Chinuch. From there, we discussed a little bit what is the nature of the Easter of Znus, for which a woman is Asr to her husband, for which she is Chayv Misa, and for which the result would be that she's not only Asr to her husband, but she's Asr to the person with whom she committed adultery, and the purpose, of course, of this mitzvah, of the mitzvah of Sota, is to obviate this discussion, to make it only a purely theoretical discussion of la'agdil Torah la'adira, but the ideal should be ha'emetz v'ashalom ha'hevu, there should be shalom ba'is in every Jewish home.
You have been listening to Rabbi Benjamin Tevori, the weekly mitzvah for Pashat Naso. Today's Halacha Yomit. We started Birkat Kohanim in the last Halacha Yomit, where the Chazan says, Elokeinu lakevoteinu barcheinu barbaracha, in place of Birkat Kohanim. Because in Chutzlaretz, the minig is, in Ashkenazi communities, not to say Birkat Kohanim every day, but only on Yamim Tovim. Since this week is going to be Shavuot, and the Kad Konim will be recited, it's recited every day in Eretz Israel, but even in Chutzlaz it will be recited on Shavuot, so I think we'll devote a few days to the Halachot of the Kad Konim. Uh, one Halacha, there's going to be no special order here, but more or less in the order of, I think, uh, importance, because people, for instance, sometimes make mistakes. One of the Halachot of the Kad Konim, mentioned explicitly in the Gemara, is Panim Keneged Panim. The faces of the Kohanim and the faces of the Mitbachim, of the Tzibur that's receiving the Bacha, are face to face. You, you face each other. The, the logic, I think, is obvious. You're getting a Bacha. The Bacha comes from he who's giving the Bacha to he who's receiving the Bacha. And, and face to face is the obvious way in which they should be, it should be, uh, uh, situated. There might be deeper, more spiritual, and perhaps mystical reasons, but the, the Pshat reason is really clear. Because Bukat Kohanim has a special aura of antiquity and holiness about it. And I think because of the fact that it's said relatively rarely in Chutzlats. And there is a halacha that in the Beit HaMikdash one was not allowed to look directly at the hands of the Kohanim. So people, a minute has arisen for people to be rather extreme in not looking at the Kohanim. It's common even to see people who turn around seen people who actually turn around and have their backs facing the Kohanim, or if they take their children underneath their talus and protect their children so the children are gathered around them, the children are facing, uh, are facing backwards, are facing the back of the shul. This is explicitly against the way in which Bukhat Kohanim should be received. Uh, I think it's actually spoiling the Bukha. So it's very important to be with the idea of not looking at the Kohanim outside the Beit HaMikdash is not even Al-Pidin. It's merely a minak. Uh, it surely should not lead one to appear to be rejecting the bracha by turning one's back to the to the kohanim. In fact, uh, as I mentioned, the basis for the entire idea of not looking at the kohanim was in the Beit Hamikdash, where the kohanim had the shekhinah resting on their hands. In outside the Beit Hamikdash, today in Shul, in fact, the halacha does not does not hold. There's a minig not to do it. Um, how does one not do it? So you have to face the Kohanim. You should look down. Not turn to the side. Panim, keneged panim. You should be facing the Kohanim. And if you don't, you'd wish not to look at the Kohanim. It's improper to look at the Kohanim. So one gazes down towards the floor in such a way that you're not looking directly at the, at the Kohanim. For the same logical reason as facing the Kohanim, and even, even more obvious, one should not be talking. During Bukat Kohanim, you're not, you're not, it's not being recited in the background. You're not even supposed to be listening. You're receiving a bracha. It would really be incredible if, let's say, a child came to get a bracha from his father on, on Erev Yom Kippur or, or Leil Shabbat, and while the father was giving the bracha, the child was talking about something else. You're, you're, you're in direct communication with the Kohanim who are representing the Kaddish Bochu. The Kohanim put the name of God on the Jews, and I, God, says, I will give the bracha. So it's it's obvious that one should not be talking or doing anything else other than not only listening but but trying to absorb, trying to receive the bracha 
from the Kohen. For that reason, you answer Amen after each Pasuk, because that's how one receives and accepts a Bracha, by answering Amen. You also answer Amen after the Bracha of the Kohen, but that's the general Halacha, of answering Amen after every, after every Bracha, but answering Amen after Yibarechacha, and Ya'er, and Yisa, uh, that's an act of receiving the bracha by the kahal, by each individual in the kahal. And that, I mean, is part of the, the process of getting a bracha and therefore has importance in and of, in and of itself. Okay, that's it for today. We will continue with different halachot having to do with bakat koanim, uh, how it is said, how the chazan says, the role of the chazan, the role of the koanim, the role of the people in the next few days, uh, before Shavuot. You've been listening to KMTT. Kimi Tzion Tetzei Torah, the Torah podcast of Yeshivat HaRetzion. Again, I'd like to remind you to recommend KMTT to your friends, acquaintances, cousins, etc. There's nothing, uh, I think, I think there's nothing like it. How to spend a half hour in the morning in your car while walking, while jogging, etc. And, and in the meantime, Shlef Kortu V'Bekat HaTorah Mitzion Umei Etzion, here in Gush Etzion. This has been Ezra Bick, and we'll be in touch tomorrow with the Shi'ur on Essentials of Avodat Hashem of Harav Moshe Taragin. Kol Tuf.